Queer Immaterial, episode four of our lesser-known icons and one of my personal favorites, Joseph Christian Landecker. In 1913, the New York Sun reported that perhaps no illustrator in the country has made a more successful attempt to bring forward and popularize such a man than Joseph C. Landecker. Landecker himself, in a rare first-person quote, said, I do not see why art cannot devote itself to business as well as to history or to beauty. In other words, art may be useful as well as ornamental. In fact, I hold that art must be useful in order to live. The German born in 1874 and Chicago raised and Paris trained illustrator and artist spent most of his life in and around New York City. That same New York Sun article continued, while nearly all the illustrators are busy turning out the girls' heads of which the public never seems to have enough, Mr. Landecker has almost exclusively devoted himself to the representation of the American man in all his phases. Landecker's queer gaze revolutionized illustration, art, and advertising. Starting as a poster and advertising illustrator, J.C. and his brother, F.X., Frank, also likely queer, created their own painting technique, visible in their groundbreaking and timeless art. J.C. made men beautiful and made beautiful men available everywhere. As he himself continues in the New York Sun piece, When I first started illustrating, I devoted nearly all of my time to women, as the rest were doing, but I soon realized that the thing was being overdone and broke away from the common practice. JC, also known as Joe, was a recluse, potentially most of his life, and certainly through most of his professional adulthood. His art was primarily used in advertising. He illustrated a few books, Uh, He has since inspired a trading card set, commemorative plates, statues, and his name is still far less known than some of those he directly inspired, and more on him later. Apparently, one month of his incredibly handsome and most famous creation, the Arrow Collar Man advertisement, modeled off of his own partner, Charles Beach, drew 17,000 fan letters in the 1920s. And a 1938 article asked, did you know it was Landecker who was responsible for that arrow collar profile which has haunted several generations of less fortunate mankind? And for that ubiquitous Hart, Schaffner, and Marx silhouette in which the blade straight shoulders, the slender waist, and the cleft chin lured all men toward the glory of being the knobbiest dresser of them all. Landecker, through his advertising art and through his magazine covers, created the idea of giving flowers on Mother's Day and the idea of having a baby celebrate the new year and mark the first of each new calendar year. He created the New Year's baby. These are things that are a constant. These are expected, built-in parts of our culture. And JC, an openly queer vanguard, influenced more of our cultural traditions 
than most people realize, even if they're unaware of him and his somewhat mysterious life. JC and his brother were extremely close, even living together for much of their adult lives. And his social circle was apparently limited beyond that. One 1938 profile mentions that the Landecker idea of a good afternoon is to get out with some workmen and move a tree or set in a row of rhododendrons. And in House and Garden in 1918, featuring their well-known estate, which really created an artistic community in Westchester, north of New York City, it was said that whether FX or JC is quite immaterial for these two brothers hold jointly and singly a unique place in the illustrating world. Few writings of JC's own voice survive outside of these profile pieces with really brief quotations. There were perhaps two interviews given to the press that have survived. There are no known diaries, journals, or notes otherwise, and his brother died well before him. Our delay in giving you this information is due solely to the artist's reticence. An article in the Saturday Evening Post in 1938 begins. Joseph Christian Landecker's dislike of personal appearances has become a legend. When we tell you that he hasn't visited the Post since 1912, you'll understand why we consider this autobiographical sketch a journalistic triumph. He started working on covers there in 1899. The remainder of the article, this exclusive bio, consists of just a few paragraphs about his childhood, his art school, and his approach to art. There were just five people at his funeral, including the most famous artist that he directly inspired. These similarities are uncanny. Norman Rockwell, who also served as a pallbearer. And by the end of his life and his 50-year career, J.C. created more than 400 magazine covers, countless ads, probably hundreds, likely thousands, and more Saturday Evening Post covers than Norman Rockwell by just one. And jealousy would be a strange part of Rockwell and Lane Decker's relationship in pretty complex ways. There's actually a lot to be learned about Lane Decker and Rockwell and this relationship, from Rockwell's autobiographical writing. In one story, Rockwell, who already alludes to moving to Westchester County simply to be near to Landecker, snuck to his house one night. I peeked around the wall and up the driveway to Mr. Landecker's studio windows, gilded by the last rays of the sun, opaque. Should I ask him to dinner, I thought? He was friendly at the banquet. Yes, but he's so famous and I thought of all the times I'd followed him about town just to see how he acted, and how I'd asked the models what Mr. Landecker did when he was painting. Then the sun dropped behind the row of houses at my back, and for a minute the windows of the mansion were dark. Maybe I'd better not, I thought. He might be offended. So the next morning, after picking up and putting down the telephone a hundred times, I steeled myself and called Mr. Landecker. Rockwell continues, stressed over the food, the cleaning, and getting ready, and as he watches for J.C. and Frank to, con- to show up, he continues, As they turned sharply, without breaking step, into our yard, I could see that they were both very handsome, dark-complexioned with high cheekbones and straight, delicately molded noses, like Spaniards, and trim, well-built, the line of their jackets falling straight, 
from shoulder to hip. Rockwell goes on to describe the awkward conversation and unbearable silence at the beginning of this encounter. But at one point, Rockwell and JC end up under the table together because some turkey fell, which they proceed to eat in a scene reminiscent of a childhood romance that Rockwell would probably later himself paint. And he said, when that turkey bounced under the table, we all of a sudden became friends and remained friends for over 25 years. There was a lot he'd never known. Women, for instance. Joe could never paint a woman with any sympathy. And Rockwell also recounted that once we talked for an hour, neither one of us looking at the floor, keeping our eyes fixed on each other's face. And then he left, and he never said anything about this to me. And then Rockwell dedicates over 10 pages of his memoir to Landecker's partner, Charles Beach. He was tall, powerfully built, and extraordinarily handsome, looked like an athlete from one of the Ivy League colleges. He spoke with a clipped British accent and was always beautifully dressed. His manners were polished and impeccable. Beach was the Kuppenheimer man, the Arrow man, and a model for numerous sports college posters. He was in many ways the epitome of our culture's expectation of masculinity and because of Landecker beauty. Once he went to live in the house, Rockwell's tone for the remainder of his exhausting detail on Beach takes a dark turn, beginning to describe how he insinuated himself into Joe's life. Everything changed after Beach moved in. He built a wall around Joe, cut him off. I knew Joe for almost 25 years, and in all that time, the only persons he ever saw besides his models were myself, his sister Augusta, and brother Frank, a family of cousins named Sullivan, and a colonel from West Point. Always just behind him comes Beach, his eyes riveted on Joe's back as if they were tied to it with a cord. Beach somehow wangled a percentage of what Joe has paid for each picture, almost like drinking his heart's blood, feeding off the core of his life. I always felt as if every brushstroke Joe put down on the canvas was part Beach's. He always spoke of Joe and himself as we. He was a real parasite, like some huge, white, cold insect clinging to Joe's back. And stupid. I don't think I ever heard him say anything even vaguely intelligent. Not that he talked very much. He would never leave us alone unless Joe specifically asked him to. Hints were no good. And Beach always acted jealous of me. I remember once Joe went off on a trip with one of his models without telling Beach. It surprised me. The next day when Beach found out, he came down to my studio to ask me all about the model. After I told him what I knew, he began to curse and call the model all sorts of vile names. Then he cried and pitied himself, saying he was mistreated and badly used and... All of a sudden, he flared up again and cursed the model, stamping his feet and waving his arms about in a kind of fit. But after a minute, he slumped down in a chair, sobbing. I think Beach resented me, too. At least he was very distanced and cold toward me. He would never call me Norman. I would ask him to, and he'd say, Oh, no, Mr. Rockwell, I couldn't, in a very polite but vaguely nasty tone of voice. Rockwell clearly indicated that Beach had corrupted his relationship with Joe. It was never the same. Rockwell continues, Augusta never told me in detail how Beach 
polluted Joe's relationship with her and Frank. I can imagine how he did it. Nasty insinuations, snide comments, a low ooze of hate. I asked the psychiatrist what had given Beach such a hold on Joe. He explained it wasn't unusual for a stupid person with only one idea in his head to gain control over a sensitive, timid person. He said it happened frequently in marriages. The stupid one just drove his one idea slowly, steadily, into the other's brain. No holding back. Waiting. Now driving it deeper. But always working at it. Never wavering or forgetting or becoming muddled. Going after what he wants doggedly because it was the only thing he wanted. And after Frank died, Rockwell said, Beach had Joe all to himself at last, just the two of them and a couple of Filipino boys in that huge mansion, surrounded by beautiful things. But in spite of all of this, Rockwell continually returns to the role Leyendecker played as his mentor, his friend, his neighbor, the intimacy they had, and the advice he gave him. Rockwell quoted Landecker as saying, Buy more than you can afford and you'll never stop working or fret so over a picture that it never gets done. If every day you have to save yourself from ruin, then every day you'll work and work hard. Landecker worked hard, very hard. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, likely, of illustrations were created by his hands. Through his queer lens, we have these iconic images and we have artistic techniques and aesthetics that have moved our culture, our ways of life, that created our sense of manliness, our ideas about beauty. That's J.C. Landecker. Thank you for listening to Queer Material, part of Electric Pansy Podcast Network. You can learn more at electricpansy.com also on social media as Queer Material. This is our first season of six episodes, uh, this being the fourth on our Lesser Known Icons. Episode five will premiere in two weeks. Hope to see you then. Make sure to share your thoughts, comments, and suggestions on Twitter and reviews wherever you're listening. Thank you. Thank you.